0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning again, and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Cinnamon rolls, I'm looking forward to it. I just get more sugar for second service today. Sounds fantastic. So... Uh, so, so good to be here. As Dustin said, we had an incredible week at day camp. Thank you. Not only to those of you sent kids, volunteered, um, but those of you who prayed throughout the week as well. The gospel went forth. Clearly the love of Christ was shown and, and we know we'll never understand on this side of eternity the impact that those things make, but we trust that God will use every word of encouragement, every, everything for his purpose. Um, that ultimately, one day we'll get to realize it was just a blessing to be here and to see so much of our church family. This isn't a one or two person event kind of running it, but but all hands on deck. And it's so such a blessing to be here and to see so many of our church family helping in that way. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open it up to the book of Psalms, which is kind of, if you're new to the Bible, that's right in the middle of your Bible. It's the longest and largest book of the Bible. We're going to be this morning in Psalm 110, Psalm 110 this morning. We are a few weeks in now to a series called Foretold, where we're looking at how. All of Scripture, the whole story of Scripture, and really the whole story of human existence in the world only makes sense around Jesus. And we're going and looking at some of the key passages in the Old Testament that give insight into Jesus' coming and his nature and his character and the work that he will do. We started off a couple weeks ago looking at Genesis 3.15, this first gospel, and when the fall of humanity happened. But right away, the storyline of Scripture is set between the woman and the offspring of the serpent and this battle that will ensue, ultimately looking forward and anticipating when the offspring of the woman, ultimately a forward picture of Jesus, will have defeat over Satan. Last week we looked at one of these prophecies of Jesus' birth and how this, this foreseeing of a Messiah coming was the great hope that Israel had to hold on to. And Pastor Ricky did a great job reminding us that in our difficulty and the storms of our life, that Jesus continues to be that hope, that anchor, that foundation for us to hold on to as we look forward to and keep our eyes on Jesus. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 110, your fun fact of Bible trivia this morning. If you're like me and you like to know Bible minutia trivia, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It may be a surprise to you. Some of you may have, may have thought it was other places because there's lots of other passages that are more well known in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at several of them this morning and see how their fulfillments and what Jesus is talking about. But even if we were just to go to where this text, these seven verses are alluded to, we wouldn't have time to do that this morning. So for your sake, we're not going to look at every single one. But this morning, our our title of the sermon is The Priest-King, and we're going to look at two different roles that Jesus will play that are foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament. We're going to see how Jesus fulfills and accomplishes those and what they mean for us today. In Psalm 110, starting at verse 1, it says this, A Psalm of David, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The first thing we see about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus is our ruling king. Jesus is our ruling king. Now, in most of the Bible, it's true, and especially here, that in helping to understand the passage and what the passage means, that it's good to know as much as we can know who's writing the passage. And more so than most any other passage, to understand the author of this psalm helps us understand the significance, especially of that first line, which if we don't understand who writes it, the first line of the psalm doesn't really seem that deep or make a lot of sense. And so this is a psalm of David. Whether you are familiar with the Bible or not, you most likely know at least one story of David's life. It's become kind of a euphemism in our culture, the story of David and Goliath, right? Kind of the classic underdog story. But David goes on just from being a young boy who kills this great Philistine warrior named Goliath and becomes the king over Israel. And throughout scripture, he is looked at as the prototypical, the model king, that a good king would be said he is a king like David. And David, by no means, is perfect. And if you know the story of David, you would definitely agree with that. And the Bible doesn't hold him up to be that. But David is this model king, the king over God's people. And the first, the first line of this, this verse is complicated. It says this, the Lord says to my Lord. All right. But if, if you're looking at it closely, you'll realize that the Lord there, even though in our English it says the same word in one, it's all capitalized. And in one, it's not. And the reason it's like that is it's accentuating the differences that it was written in the original language. Now, Lord in all caps is the personal name of God throughout the whole Testament. Translated often as Yahweh, but they would translate it Adonai, thus Lord in our English Bibles. The Lord, so the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, Lord would just be a name that any ruler, any king would have. So God, the ultimate, the true God, the one true God of Israel, says the king, says to my king. Now, this is the king talking about a coming king on which he will address as king. See, if this is just a regular person in Israel saying God will send a king, we'll be like, well, yeah, Israel has kings. You're not the king, so you call him the king. But this is the king saying there is one who's coming, who even me as the prototypical greatest king in Israel, I will look to and says, this is my Lord. This is my future king. And Jesus used this passage of the Lord says to my Lord and then sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus uses this passage to help underscore the greatness of his coming, that he is not just the Messiah who's come to save Israel, but he also has come as their king as well. Jesus actually quotes this passage directly in three of the Gospels. We're just going to look at one in Matthew 22, in Luke 20, and as well as in Mark 12. We're just going to look at one because it's basically the same. It's quoting the same story and for the same instance. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, that is the Messiah, is the son of David? Now, another thing which we don't have time to go into and look, but there's another Old Testament prophecy that Jesus will come from the lineage of David. And so, but what would be referenced here by them saying he's the son of David, being the son of someone indicates inferiority, right? If you're the son of someone, you're not as great as they are. And so the scribes are saying, well, the Messiah is the son of David, meaning there's King David and then Messiah, not quite as great as King David is. And that's kind of what some of the scribes were saying. Well, this is what the Old Testament teaches. But to refute that, Jesus says this in Mark twelve thirty six and 37. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. See, what Jesus uses this Psalm to indicate is that being the Messiah does not make him inferior to anyone, but he's actually this great king as well that was anticipated that even the greatest king of Israel, King David, looked forward to the day and said, that will one day be my king, my Lord as well. This, this is a, this is a Psalm pointing to the greatness of Jesus, that the Messiah to come would be Lord and King over all things. Not only is it this first line, but the second line as well of this passage is a line that contains power and authority that they would have readily understood is conveyed on this one who is to come. When it says that this this, this person will receive this command from Yahweh that they are to sit at my right hand to sit at my right hand, the place of privilege, the place of power. Again, this is one of those where we don't have time to start to look through the New Testament on every single instance. But when you read the New Testament and you read references to Jesus being at the right hand of God, what is it always coming back to? It's coming back to Psalm 110.1. It is always a reference back to this is the position that Yahweh said that the Messiah, his son, would have is to sit at this position of power and authority at the right hand. We see this in 1 Peter. We see this several times in the book of Hebrews. And one of the places that it shows up prominently quoted in the New Testament is actually in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is the event that we're going to look at. It is when the Holy Spirit comes, empowers the apostles who are the disciples of Jesus who remained. And they, they Peter gets up in front of the, crowd, the crowds and speaks this powerful sermon. And because his audience is primarily a Jewish audience who is there, he starts to kind of walk through the whole story of Scripture and how it points to Jesus. And he gets to the end of it, and he uses this. This is the the conclusion to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, starting in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that is King David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, get get what he's hinting at already, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this for you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Peter uses this passage as a summary of all that he has to say about Jesus. The whole biblical teaching to say, there's two things you need to know about Jesus. He is Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. Come into the world to pay for your sin, that one promise of God. But he's not just Christ. He is Lord. Jesus is our King. And he makes sure that he understands us and that, that as followers of Jesus, this is now Acts 2 comes after Jesus's ministry on earth that we understand Jesus did not come just to save us from our sins. He did. He did not come just for that. He came to rule and reign over ourselves and all of the world. Jesus does not just live now. He reigns now. The resurrection doesn't just show that Jesus is alive today, but that Jesus reigns today. He sits at the right hand of God, a privilege, a place of power and authority. And therefore, being a king, not just our Savior, our Messiah, but our Lord and our king, the king has the right to command obedience from those who are under his authority. Right? And they would have readily understood this in their time and in their culture, where kings ruled, you did what the king told him to do. Now, this is a little more difficult for us, because as Americans, we don't have a great relationship with kings. Right, I'm just thinking back to Hamilton seeing the king there, right? Like this is how we treat kings. We make the mockery of them. We're like, "Hey, we ruled over you. We conquered you. We don't bow down to kings anymore. We get to do what we want to do." Right, We're independent. We don't have a king who rules over and obeys us. Even those politicians, if we don't like them, eventually they'll move out in a number of years. They're not there forever until they die. We don't have a king. And so this is a little bit harder for us to grasp. It's not in our culture like how it would have been in their time. But we need to understand if we are followers of Jesus, Jesus did not come just to be our savior from our sin. He is our Lord and king who must be followed with our lives as well. See, we we kind of, in our lives, we, we tend to try and get around this with different ways. To be honest, a lot of Christians treat Jesus like a consultant, not like a king. Some of you I know here at a church are consultants. The great thing about consultants is you're hired from an outside company, right? And what do you do? You come in, you look at a company, an organization, you give your advice, your wisdom, your expertise that you've earned over the years. And what do you kind of do? Like, hey, this is yours to do with what you want. I'm out. Right, And whether you follow it or not, it's on you. This is my advice. Do what you want. And we tend sometimes to be like, hey, Jesus, come on in. Look at some things in my life. Give me some options. Okay, thanks. Now let me pick what I want to do with your advice. It's not, hey, Jesus, tell me what to do. But hey, give me some options, and I'm going to pick what I want to do. We treat Jesus like a consultant or an advisor Sometimes. So we have all sorts of reasons why we treat Jesus this way. But I think for so many of us, one of the fundamental reasons is, is that as our King, as our Lord, Jesus often tells us to do things, commands things of us that we just don't understand, right? I think if we understood We typically and naturally obey, but Jesus commands us to do things that we in our limited understanding don't obey because we don't understand. If like, hey, when my understanding matches up with what Jesus tells me, that's easy. But there's a lot of times where it doesn't. Think of it this way though, we overestimate our own understanding. So so it's Father's Day, so I had to tell at least one father's story. right? I have two little girls who I absolutely love and adore, and our oldest is three years old. She just turned three about a month ago. And so one of the, the joys of having a three-year-old, some of you are right in the trenches here with me, is bedtime. And I, by joys, I mean it's hell. It's horrible trying to put a three-year-old to bed right these these children become master negotiators at life like they will do everything to manipulate and keep mom and dad from leaving the room right they want you to stay like they are amazing at this but but why do i as a loving dad tell arya no listen you ha- i'm not going to read another book you have to go to bed it's because i have a greater understanding than she does she thinks hey what i need is to stay up as long as i want and i'm like no what you need is to go to bed child Last night, she was utterly exhausted. We read her three books. She was like, no. And I'm like, all right, lay down. We said our prayers. And then after, I, I always pray with her. We hold hands. And then I always say, can you say amen? And normally, it's like a cheery, happy amen. Last night was amen. It was like painful utterance, right? And then we did our, our special handshakes. And she got up and screamed at us for about 30 seconds when we left the room until she just literally fell over and passed out exhausted in her bed. Right? There's a gap between her understanding and mine. Therefore, when I tell her to do something that she doesn't understand, I'm like, no, listen, you need to do it because I understand things that you don't. As big as that gap might be from my three-year-old to me, the gap of my understanding to Jesus's understanding is a lot bigger. But Jesus sometimes will tell me to do something and I'll be like, I don't understand that. I'm not gonna do it. And what we do is we look like a toddler trying to tell their parents what is right And what is wrong? But so often we excuse our disobedience to our king because we don't understand what he does. The reality is we'll never understand a lot of why Jesus asks us to do things. We'll never understand in our way why or what the significance of that Jesus is calling us to. But if Jesus is our ruling king, he calls on us to obey him. If we only obey Jesus when we understand he's not our king, He's just our consultant or our advisor. And so when there's a gap, and some of you, I'm sure right now, there's a gap between your understanding and what God is calling you to do. And in those places, that's where we trust. It's where we trust in him and we obey him knowing he's our king. He's not just my savior, but also my Lord. And I'm to follow him even when I don't understand. Verse 1 also has this phrase in it, the last phrase, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The second thing that this is teaching us about Jesus is he's not just our ruling king now, but Jesus is also our coming king, is that Jesus will come again one day. This language that that the psalmist used, that David uses, until I make your enemies your footstool, If you were here two weeks ago, that should start to to get some things running in your mind. Where is David picking this imagery up? He's picking it up from Genesis 3.15. The great conflict until until the offspring of the woman puts his foot on the head of the serpent. The psalmist is picking up this language. And this idea is, is that Jesus will one day, he's ruling now, until one day he'll ultimately defeat evil. The New Testament picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Hebrews 10 says this, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet." That's why verses 5 to 7 of this psalm are are a forward-looking anticipation, a poetic vision of this conquering king who will one day come again. It says this, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That's, That's the second coming, the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. These are poetic images of a conquering king coming and ruling and judging and making all things right to him. Now, it's, it's the, Psalms and the, and the Old Testament in particular, when it talks about prophecy, can be a little tricky sometimes. Because sometimes it's referring to Jesus' first coming. And sometimes it's also talking about a second coming and there's not like a big billboard that's telling us which it is, right? And this is thing that we call progressive fulfillment or multiple fulfillment. And I think sometimes we need to give the, the first century followers of Jesus and particularly the disciples, we need to give them a break sometimes, right? Because they're here looking at Psalm 110 that, okay, Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make his enemies his footstool. Nations like are about gonna bow down. And so when they look to Jesus coming, they're gonna be like, oh my goodness, this is happening now. And then Jesus shows up and fulfills the first part of this, but not the rest. And they're like, wait, I thought there was more. And there is more, but it's not yet to come. And we stand in this amazing time where we look back and we see how Jesus has come as king, as savior, and we look forward to when he ultimately will come again. And we see passages like this, both looking back to what Jesus has done and looking forward to what he will one day do. The amazing thing about passages like this and so many throughout the New Testament, that the the idea of Jesus coming again and ruling over things, it's referred to as our great hope. Why is this our great hope? It's because we know that Jesus will come again and he will make all things right that are wrong in the world. Every wrong, every injustice, Jesus will come again and make it right. And because of that, Christians, of all people, when it comes to the fate of humanity, the fate of the world, no matter how bad, how evil things are, Christians should always be eternal optimists. We should be eternal optimists. And I know some of you, this is very hard. You're sitting at me like this, being like, I don't wanna be an optimist, right? I make a lot of money because I'm a pessimist, right? Like I tell people what's wrong, right? Like, like for some of us, this is not natural. But, but when, when we, I think all of us at times, we start to, to read the news. We start to look at the events of the things happening around us. It's easy to get pessimistic real quick about our world, isn't it? Like, what is happening? In the midst of that, what we need is to look at a reminder from God's word that Jesus is coming and it will all be great. Jesus is coming and it will all be great. We, we just finished our day camp for most of us, myself included, day camp's kind of like a thing that's on really on my mind for like one and a half weeks, right? Like maybe two weeks full because we start working on this the week before our camp. But for Shawnee, who's our pastor of kids ministry, this is front and center on her mind for, I don't know, six months. Eight months, not, like she's she's probably already starting to think about. She's trying not to, but I know she's already thinking about next summer, right? She can't help herself, right? She's she's always thinking about it, and and there is such a high level of complexity and detail that Shiny handles with amazing expertise that I definitely could not. But there are times, especially in the months, the last month or so leading up to camp that when us as pastors are gathered together, we kind of we go over some things and each pastor goes around and just shares some things that are going on, asks for help and input. And when it comes to Shawnee, she'll start listening. Well, we gotta do this for camp. We gotta do this, we gotta find this many volunteers, we've got to decorate this, we got this many, we got this, and you can kind of sense like the tension starting to rise. We're like, oh my goodness, there is a lot to do. There is a lot to do. And she always does it and she's proficient at it. But like any of us would, I think like, holy cow, am I going to get it all done? Am I going to get it all done? And whenever that happens, there's Anthony, our youth pastor. Have you seen Anthony flustered before? I have one time in the two years that I've seen Anthony, like five, six days a week. He is cool, he's calm, he's collected. There's Anthony, he always sits over on the side in our staff meeting and he always goes, it's kind of become a joke at this point. He goes, Shawnee, 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 it'll be great. It will, and she's like, you're right, it will be great. And we always laugh and joke about it, but, but what is he doing? He's just providing perspective that, hey, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult it is now, it's gonna be great. And what the Bible does when it talks about Jesus as our coming king is it gets us out of this perspective There's so hard, there's so much going on, it just calms us down and says, hey, it's going to be great. You're a child of God. Jesus is coming again. You're okay. It's going to be great. Jesus is our hope because he is our coming king. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you Are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The third insight into who Jesus will be, not just that he's our ruling king, not that he's our coming king, but this psalm also helps us understand that Jesus is our eternal high priest. Jesus is our eternal high priest. This is a complicated passage, but we're going to crank through it here. The priest that he's talking about, for, for us to understand what it means that Jesus would be a priest forever. A priest is one who represents God before God's people. Who, who takes the sins and would offer the sacrifices in the Old Testament and would be the one through, through the priest one would have access to God. And this priest is no longer needed in our system of Christianity today. Why? Because we have one high priest, and we're going to look at this, who remains forever, and it's not a person who lives here, but it's Jesus. He is now our permanent and our eternal priest, our go-between between man and God. And to illustrate that that's what the Messiah, what Jesus will be like, he says that it will be one who's like the order of Melchizedek. Because I'm sure you all read your devotionals this morning about our favorite biblical character, Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up a few times in scripture. In Genesis chapter 14, which is in the story of Abraham, Abraham is defeated, one is battle. It's actually the only military victory that Abraham has. He, he defeats in battle. He comes back home and kind of it pops in out of nowhere. It's just three verses long in Genesis 14. There's this guy named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, who shows up and it says he is both a king and a priest. And Abraham actually up, bows down and gives to this king 10% of the spoils of war that he has achieved. And then Melchizedek disappears from the Bible. He literally shows up for three verses, disappears. He shows up the next time here in Psalm 110, and then he starts to show up again in the book of Hebrews. Now, this is significant in Psalm 110 that these two ideas of Jesus being a king and a priest are put together. In Israel's history, kings and priests were always separate. There was the king over Israel and there were the priests over Israel. They were never one and the same. In fact, in Second Chronicles 26 tells the story of King Uzziah who tried to do both, who was the king, who wanted to be the priest. What did God do? He sent him leprosy, right? Uzziah got the message real quick. Okay, I should just be the king. I shouldn't also try and be the priest as well, right? So this, these never were combined until Jesus now becomes not only our king, but our eternal high priest as well. Hebrews picks it up first off in Hebrews chapter five, where it says this in Hebrews five, starting at verse five. Let me get there myself. Hebrews five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews continues and picks up this theme again at the end of the next chapter in verse 6. So, excuse me, chapter six, starting at verse 19. He says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the, the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, a portion, a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and that he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying there is not that literally Melchizedek is like, fatherless and motherless. It's not that he is some miracle of life that like spewed up from the ground. But what he's saying is when you read through, and if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you get this, there's a lot of names, a lot of genealogies, a lot of heritages of this is why so-and-so this became from. And that's included, especially in the priests, they all trace back to the same family line. And so what he says is when he has neither father nor mother, it's not that he literally doesn't have a mom or a dad, but his parents aren't of any significance. They don't show up. We have no idea who they were. So he becomes a priest and a king, not based on who his parents were, but based on who God makes him be. In the same way, Jesus is a priest, not based on his physical lineage, but on who God has appointed him to be. Finally, it concludes this later on in chapter seven. It says this, starting at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's both a priest and a king who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law had made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those of us who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Now, I know that was a lot, but this is so significant that the author of Hebrews references, I hope you picked it up, The Psalm 110, is just oozing through all of those verses, many times quoted directly, looking back to Psalm 110, that Jesus is not only a king, but a priest. He talks about there this idea of an oath. Well, it's just strengthening even more so that God promised, he made an oath that Jesus would be forever the one who would be our priest representing humanity to God. So you're probably saying, all right, you just read a whole bunch of the Bible. There's a lot of big words that I don't necessarily understand. What's the big deal? Why is it so important that Jesus is not just the king, the coming king, but that Jesus is also our priest? Well, he alluded to it several times, but Jesus being our priest first and foremost reminds us that Jesus is our source of salvation, that Jesus is the means of salvation for us in this new, this better covenant that we have. I love in verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That because Jesus in Hebrews talks about this more, isn't just a priest who who offers sacrifices. It, It starts to mix metaphors later on that Jesus is the priest who offered himself as the permanent sacrifice for sin. And so salvation is now possible because Jesus has come and is our priest and always represents us to God. And if you're here this morning and you've been seeking salvation, you've been trying to place your life, your trust, your hope, and anything else, I hope you see this morning that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one, both now and forever, who stands between humanity and God. And there is one way to God, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. That he is our priest, not just when he came, but he now remains forever. It's this thing that God has promised, made an oath that will never change. And if you try and get to God through any other way, you will fall short and you will spend your life wasting away your time and your energy. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the one way to God. The other thing that this reminds us of is that we don't need to call out to anyone else to have access to God, the Father in heaven. All we need to do is call out to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who always lives to intercede for you and for me. One of my, my favorite stories and questions in, in the New Testament, Jesus asks so many amazing questions. But it's one in, where he has an interaction with a man who is blind. And Jesus just simply asks this man this question. What do you want me to do for you? What, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, the blind man, I, I want to see. And Jesus heals him. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. You have access right this moment, if you're a child of God, to the creator of all things, the sustainer of life. And Jesus asks, what what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to bring to the Father? What burden is in your life? What worry are you carrying? What do you want me to do for you? And if you're here this morning and you're carrying a burden, there's something in your life that you haven't released and given to God just in the quietness of this moment, would you give that to Jesus? He ever lives to intercede for you on your behalf to God the Father. Whatever it is that's weighing you down, you can give it to Jesus and he will carry you through. God, we thank you. That you have come as our king and as our priest. God, I pray for us, God, in the areas of our lives where it is hard for us to obey you, where we don't naturally want to submit to your will, where, where our understanding doesn't line up with what you've called us to do. God, would you teach us what it means to trust you, to follow you, not just as our savior, but as our Lord and as the king over our lives. God, and we thank you for the amazing privilege that we can come before God the Father with anything because of what Jesus has done for us and continues right now to do for us that he represents us before you. God, the burdens, the things in our lives, would we give them to you today, representing you love us and understanding you care for us. And you will be faithful to us no matter what. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.